I'm Ben Dominich. I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Trey Gowdy, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, September 11th, 2023, I'm Mike Emanuel. The migrant crisis has now spread from border states like Texas and Arizona to blue cities such as New York City. And some suggest the response by New York City Mayor Eric Adams will bankrupt the Big Apple. All agencies across the board will see service cuts and and the community will see service cuts. So he's taking away from citizens services to provide to those who are not citizens of New York. And Lisa Brady. In hundreds of school districts across the U.S., remote teachers are being used to help fill gaps, fueling more debate about education. The distance that comes um, between a teacher and a student in this kind of arrangement is really problematic. We're still teaching kids the same way we taught them 150 years ago. And I'm Nicole Parker. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. There's a blame game underway between New York City, New York State, and the Biden administration over the migrant crisis and its impact on the Big Apple. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says President Biden has done all he can. We have provided the state and city more than $140 million in federal funding through DHS just this fiscal year. Uh, following conversations with leaders in New York across the country. Though New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, is clearly frustrated with President Biden when it comes to the migrant issue. I believe that we should be doing better things on this issue, the migrants. This is a national problem. It should be handled by the national government. And we're going to continue to say that and advocate for it. But New York City Assembly member Ron Kim offered a different assessment. We are in this blaming and pandering cycle because we no longer have the local, municipal, or even state capacity to take care of people in high demand urban cities like New York City. Uh, migrants are not destroying our cities. It's incompetent local administrations uh, who are destroying our cities because they're too busy outsourcing to nonprofits and third-party contracts to fix our problems. Though everyone has a different opinion of who may be at fault, Vice President Kamala Harris insisted there are signs of improvement on CBS's Face the Nation. Overall, we are seeing progress, but there is, we're not going to have a constant, there are going to be fluctuations. That is normal, just like the weather fluctuates and, and circumstances fluctuate, such as elections in those regions and what that might mean. Despite that comment, frustration is building and hope is running low. New York City mayor has chosen to misinterpret our right to shelter law. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis is a Republican who represents New York's Staten Island and part of Brooklyn. It was intended for homeless New Yorkers, American citizens, not citizens of other countries who entered our southern border illegally and then now proceeded to New York City. I would argue that the mayor is actually incentivizing more and more people to come to New York City and come to America legally by offering free housing, free services to the tune of $12 billion over the next couple of years. And his solution is to have the federal government uh, give more money. That He has not asked for the president to undo his executive orders that created this mess. He did not ask for Senator Schumer to pass House Republicans' Border Security Act, which we passed in May. 
He's asking for more federal dollars so he can open more shelters and just exacerbate the problem. We cannot allow this mayor to continue to incentivize illegal immigration into the country and to New York City. Mayor Adams said last week the migrant crisis, quote, will destroy New York City if something is not done to help manage the mass amount of asylum seekers who continue to arrive. What do you make of that statement? He's absolutely right. Uh, New York City will go bankrupt. This will destroy New York City. He needs to acknowledge his role in this crisis. He is the one who insists New York City must house countless individuals who are citizens of other countries. That's illogical. No one is talking about being compassionate to the taxpayer in New York who's already struggling to get by. The people who are working multiple jobs, the people who are having difficulty paying their rent, paying their mortgage, they can't keep up with their bills due to high inflation under Joe Biden. But now the mayor wants to continue to hammer them over the head saying that they got to pay the rent for a luxury hotel room for an individual who's in this country illegally. 65%, between half and 65% of the asylum cases are denied in court. And that is because people are taking advantage of this country's generosity. They are claiming asylum to gain access, but when they get to court, their cases are dismissed. They're, they're denied, rather. So that just tells you that they've opened up a can of worms here that is inviting people from all over the country to come here the wrong way. And that is wrong. And that it, it really is a slap in the face to the immigrants of New York City who played by the rules, did everything right. They waited in line. They've sacrificed tremendously to have an opportunity to be in this country. Uh, it really is a slap in their face because now they're being asked also to shell out more money to pay for this. And what the city's doing is cutting 15% across the board, potentially, the entire city budget. That means our streets, you know, sanitation services, police services, fire, all agencies across the board will see service cuts and, and the community will see service cuts. So he's taking away from citizens services to provide to those who are not citizens of New York. As children head back to school in New York City, how has the influx of migrants impacted that process? Well, not only has it been a tremendous uh, cost burden, uh, because we already have overcrowded classrooms, you're talking about roughly 20,000 students that have now been added to the public school system where we are in need of more seats. And that is why so many people in my community of Staten Island were upset when they took it, what's supposed to be a new public school for a thousand seats, took it and are giving it now for migrants to live in instead. That is not helping us in easing the burden of these overcrowded classrooms. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's obviously doing the opposite. So it's not just costing the city hundreds of millions of dollars more for their education, but it's taking away resources from kids that are, are New Yorkers who have been struggling since COVID. They need extra help. They need extra attention. Uh, instead of them receiving it, uh, that attention and those resources are going elsewhere. At what point in this crisis will it take for President Biden to do something serious to help major cities like New York City, as well as struggling border communities in places like Texas and Arizona, manage this crisis before it gets too late? So what's what's interesting about what our administration is doing, when you think about it, they're fighting us at every single turn. They have no interest in wanting to secure the border, both the mayor and governor and the president. And I'll tell you why, because they're constantly 
fighting us in court. When you see uh, Title 42 was reversed, you see Remain in Mexico was reversed by Supreme Court, and then the, the, the Biden administration goes and is appealing all these decisions constantly. Um, mm-hmm. They are ignoring the decisions. Texas actually went and put their own barriers up because the federal government will not support them. They went and did it themselves. And the administration actually went to court to fight them to have those barriers removed. That's what they're using our tax dollars and our you know, Department of Justice to do. Locally, Mayor Adams is doing the same thing because there's a law right now that was just put in that would allow non-citizens to vote in New York City elections. Obviously, that's not only unconstitutional, it's a violation of New York election law. We sued, we won, and the mayor is appealing that decision. And the problem with that decision as it applies to these migrants is if you reside in New York City for just 30 days, just 30 days, and you have work authorization, you will be allowed to register and vote in our municipal elections in New York City. And that is why the mayor and the governor are pushing so hard for work authorization. So they, they, they obviously continue to do everything they can to incentivize individuals to evade our laws, to enter our country, come to our city, uh, and they are using our government resources to sue and to counter us every time we fight back. And so that's what the American people need to know, that they do not want to see this crisis end. Members of the House like yourself returned to Capitol Hill this week. I know a hot issue this month is expected to be government funding. The fiscal year ends at the end of the month. What are you anticipating as you return to the Capitol for these discussions? I think it's going to be a real dogfight. I think that we are fighting to preserve this country economically. We're trying to cap spending, cut spending, making sure that we're spending money the right way. We have a fiduciary responsibility to do that. And then we have Democrats in the Senate who feel that money grows on trees, that the $32 trillion uh, debt we have means nothing. And they want to continue to spend more money and waste more money on things that we can't afford, like allowing our borders to continue to be open and to process more paperwork. Uh, instead of using our Customs and Border Patrol agents to, to actually allow them to do their job and to control who is coming in and out so we know who is coming in and out. At a time where we found terrorists on the watch list, we, ISIS is smuggling people, we know these things. And so we plan to use our leverage in this appropriations process to get accountability, to get changes at the border and make sure the money is being spent the right way. Not to continue to bust people to New York, not to continue to fund these non-government organizations that are doing all this, um, but to make sure that our Customs and Border Patrol agents have the tools, the resources to get the job done. And so I think this border crisis is really going to be the line in the sand. Republicans want to see border security. And I know that Chuck Schumer in the Senate will be fighting us every step of the way on that. Um, and so that, that, I think, is at the end of the day where this fight's really going to be as we move forward the next couple of weeks. In recent days, you joined service members at Fort Hamilton Army Base in Brooklyn, honoring the lives lost 22 years ago on September 11, 2001. As everyone across America takes time to remember those tragically lost, and of course, something that hits close to home and the people you represent, how was the ceremony commemorating the lives we lost that day in 2001? Yeah, obviously, it's a a very tragic weekend for us as we commemorate the lives of 
of those individuals that were lost, but not just those lost on 9-11, but since. And we nearly have double the number now that we have been killed uh, because of 9-11, thanks to these terrible illnesses that they're suffering uh, as a result from the debris removal and all the work they did at ground zero. So we are losing in my community, sadly, firefighters, police officers, first responders on a regular basis. And so the impact of 9-11 is far from over. And we are still feeling it in New York City each and every day. We want to see justice for these 9-11 families. That is why I fought so hard last year to make sure that the widows and children of those individuals who were killed on 9-11 received compensation from the the victims of state-sponsored terrorism fund. These are seized assets from terrorists um, that should be going to these families. They also want to see a conviction. They want to see the ultimate punishment for uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, as well as the other four terrorists who are sitting in Guantanamo Bay. We need that trial to take place, and we need a conviction and the ultimate death penalty uh, for those terrorists. Uh, so that's what my families in my district are looking forward uh, to seeing, that justice being served. But sadly, um, you know, look, it's going to be the 22nd year. It continues to be very impactful and hurtful, uh, mm-hmm. and, and not having a conviction and full justice just adds to it. We must never forget, Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis of the great state of New York, thank you so much for your time this day, and I wish you a great week. Thank you, Mike. This is Nicole Parker with your Fox News commentary coming up. School's back in session, but not all teachers are back in the classroom. There's a shortage across the U.S. blamed on a combination of factors, with more teachers leaving jobs that have only become more challenging over time. Our teachers morph from being an educator to a social worker, to being a parent, to being a mental health professional. New York Governor Kathy Hochul signing a bill aimed at recruiting more underrepresented candidates to teaching, boosting diversity. In Nevada, Clark County kindergarten teacher Kristen Nigro says they have more than a thousand vacancies. 35,000 students do not have a licensed educator in front of them. The National Center for Education Statistics says last year, more than 40% of schools in the U.S. reported teacher vacancies. This has more districts turning to virtual instruction. Teachers, sometimes hundreds of miles away, which in the past may have supplemented course offerings, but are now being used for core subjects. I mean, if you go back 20-some years, you have asynchronous instruction that really was the original remote learning, where you take the teacher out, it's really click, click, learn. Evan Erdberg is president of Proximity Learning, which is now teaching more than 100,000 students in over 230 school districts in 31 states. You know, over the last you know seven or eight years, you know, we pioneered it, but other companies are also doing it now where because the technology is now there, live instruction becomes a better option or another option for districts to use and This wasn't something that happened because of COVID. This is something that happened because the teacher shortage was occurring 10 years ago. It's now just expedited with COVID and people leaving. Hmm. Can you give us a sense of how much this has 
grown? Like how many districts just your company is is serving compared to what it was doing 10 years ago? Sure. I mean, 10 years ago when we started, we had to first educate the market on online education. Most people understood asynchronous, but no one knew about live virtual instruction. Zoom wasn't a thing. And we had to educate people. Our first five years, uh, it was a hard uphill battle because people did not look at us as a real option. We also were looked at as a Band-Aid. The thinking was just a a person in the classroom is better than a virtual instructional program. So it took us probably a good seven years to build up and educate the market that virtual education can be valuable. They realized that virtual instruction can be an option. And so that allowed us to really scale. Hmm. Now, remote teaching does have its critics, you know, and some of those arguments are that what about the teacher-student connection? You know, a, a virtual teacher can't really maybe see all the nuances of what's going on with a student's reaction to something or you know, how they might be feeling about a certain subject or questions that sort of might be brewing, just that that personal interaction maybe isn't the same. What do you say to that? We're still teaching kids the same way we taught them 150 years ago. Um, when a child comes out of high school, if they go to college, there's a 30% chance that your teacher is going to be online via Zoom or other video technology. So when it comes to our K-12 students, um, using this virtual model actually allows us to reach them on the modality they're used to anyway. Kids are in TikTok, they're on Instagram. You need to really create an environment that's dynamic, that's consistently changing every five to 10 minutes. In an online world that's live virtual instruction, you're able to do that. Is really no different than having someone there in person. It sounds like the model probably varies depending on the class and the students in the district, too. Like, for instance, you know, are they wearing headphones or not wearing headphones? How do they communicate with the teacher who's not actually in the classroom? But there have been questions raised in some districts about kids walking out of class. You know, what about accountability for how students are doing? What about the parent-teacher conference? How do you address all of those concerns? It's fair concerns. And it's not just with virtual instruction. Those same problems are happening with teachers in classes. I mean, post-COVID, the SEL issues, the social-emotional learning issues, have just blown up. And so students don't know how to act in class. They don't know how to raise their hand or deal with stress. They're walking out. So the same problems that a virtual teacher has are the problems that an in-class teacher have. What really makes this successful is the partnership between our virtual teacher and there's always an in-class sub, aide, or para who's there as well. It's not just kids in the classroom and there's no adult supervision. This next question might depend on location, I realize, but um, in general, is this more expensive per class than having a teacher in person and how are districts affording this? New Mexico pays $29,000 a year for a teacher versus New Jersey that pays $75,000 a year. So it does depend on the location, but typically the cost for our program is around the exact same amount of money that they're going to pay for a teacher, um, wherever they are. And in districts in the north that do pay more per teacher, it's actually going to be a cost savings for them. 
Um, well, how they compare us to is a first-year teacher. So it's not always a real fair comparison because most of our teachers are coming with five to 10 years experience, have their advanced degrees. So they would normally be paid higher. At the end of the day, districts, if they're in the South, are typically um, paying the same. If districts are in the North or in areas where they typically pay teachers more, they're saving. Is your company facing issues with teacher shortages as well, the, the same way the districts are? COVID has normed remote work in general. Teachers now have the option to do not just teaching, but so many other things outside of teaching and make a whole lot more money. So one of the things that we've done is we've partnered with several universities to actually build our own teachers where we actually do student teaching programs where we'll have over 75 student teachers a year coming into our programs. And uh, we also are taking people through teacher certification and we're paying for it. So we're trying to figure out unique ways to build our own teachers because access to teachers has definitely become more challenging. Some districts argue that remote teachers are better than no teachers when they're struggling to fill vacancies. Some critics aren't so sure. It would be possible in a very specialized course that a remote teacher who is very, you know, solid in the subject and skilled at teaching remotely would be better than no one. Susan Moore Johnson is a research professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and author of Where Teachers Thrive, Organizing Schools for Success. The idea of having virtual teaching in standard subjects, I think, is really misguided. And it might look like a stopgap solution, but I'm confident in saying that it would ultimately harm students and really weaken the schools. More schools are using remote teaching to fill gaps in staffing for core subjects. Is, is that a sign that it's here to stay? Or are you hoping that we're still in a post-pandemic adjustment period? I don't think it's simply a post-pandemic adjustment period. I think it is a period when political issues about schools, about teachers, have really caused teachers and prospective teachers to think twice about whether they can actually do the work that they hope to do. And I mean, there are several problems with virtual teaching. One is simply that we know from the pandemic that remote teaching was um, harmful to kids overall. Good schooling is ultimately a social enterprise between teachers and students over time, not in a single course, but over time. Um, and the virtual relationships would undermine the school by disrupting um, the, the ongoing work of students and teachers. It sounds like some of your overriding concerns are you know, a virtual teacher missing some of the cues um, and, and signals that they would otherwise pick up from students in a classroom, which then also feeds into sort of the cumulative effect of, you know, the student-teacher relationship that you're talking about. I would assume that a teacher who is very good at this would pick up certain kinds of cues, but teachers are constantly assessing and adjusting to how a student's feeling, whether they're confused, 
what they might learn from other students in the classroom. I mean, it's it's this constant process that's very dynamic and that simply cannot be captured on a screen. What's lost within the classroom, particularly other students' contributions to their peers' learning, but also that the student's experience extends beyond that course or that class. The teacher shortage around the country is something that may take quite a while to resolve. So to the right. to the extent that, you know, remote teaching may be here to stay at least for a while, what would you like to see done differently? How could schools, you know, improve on the model that's being used, at least by some of the companies that they're hiring? I don't know enough about the details of the models. I've read about them. Um, but I actually would discourage any school district or any school from resolving this problem by hiring a company and, um, you know, subcontracting instruction. I think it's a very bad idea. So any investment to be made ought to be made in improving teachers' salaries and working conditions. The distance that comes um, between a teacher and a student in this kind of arrangement is really problematic. I, I really, uh, I don't have any recommendations for the companies. And from what I've read, it's pretty costly for the district. So it's not as if it's really um, saving money. I think that schools and districts should take seriously the recruitment of teachers and figure out how to do that, how to build a kind of ongoing pipeline from preparation programs um, to their school or to their districts. And I think that they need to be given the resources they need to find the teachers that students deserve. Susan Moore Johnson, research professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday marks 22 years since the September 11th terrorist attacks, taking the lives of nearly 3,000 people. Memorial ceremonies will be held throughout the U.S., including at the World Trade Center in New York, the Pentagon, and the Flight 93 Memorial in Pennsylvania. Tuesday, Apple hosting an event at its California headquarters, where the tech giant is expected to unveil the new iPhone 15 model. Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will host tech leaders on Capitol Hill for a forum on artificial intelligence. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are expected to attend the discussion on future AI policy. Thursday is the deadline for United Auto Workers to come to terms on contracts with General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. The UAW has vowed to go on strike if new deals aren't in place. Friday is Utah Congressman Chris Stewart's last day in office, stepping down to care for his ailing wife. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Matt Napolitano, Fox News.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Nicole Parker. What's on your mind? It was 8.46 a.m. on September 11th, 2001, the moment that changed my life forever. It was the beginning of the deadliest day in U.S. history. Everyone remembers where they were. I was a barely 23-year-old Texan living in New York City. I moved to New York to experience the electric energy and unique opportunities the city had to offer. That morning, I was working at Merrill Lynch on the top floor of the World Financial Center, adjacent to the World Trade Center when I heard the loudest explosion. I ran to the window and saw the unfathomable right before my eyes. I was stunned. There was a gaping hole in the upper portion of one World Trade Center North Tower. Dark smoke and massive flames billowed from the tower as silver chunks of metal from the building siding floated through the air like confetti. Rolls of toilet paper, countless sheets of computer paper and other debris showered the sky. Evil terror continued to unfold as we saw a second airplane fly into two World Trade Center, the South Tower. We were under attack. But how was this happening? We lived in the United States. Things like this didn't happen here. I felt like I was watching a terrifying nightmare, except that it was all real. As time progressed, the sight became more gruesome as innocent civilians desperately jumped to their deaths from the upper floors of the World Trade Center. The carnage was horrifying. I witnessed the best and worst of humanity that day. Angelic warriors rose to the occasion. Countless lives were saved because of the heroic efforts of the FDNY, NYPD, and Port Authority Police. While most were running away to escape death and horror, they were running toward the danger to rescue lives. As a result of 9-11-01, many enlisted to serve in the U.S. military. Since the attacks, over 7,000 military members have been killed in combat, and sadly, more than 30,000 military personnel and veterans have lost their lives to suicide. Not only do many servicemen and women sustain physical injuries, such as losing limbs, but they also silently cope with the less visible mental and emotional injuries resulting from trauma. Many have witnessed their military brothers and sisters being killed before their eyes. We owe a debt of gratitude to our military members and law enforcement officers who keep our nation safe every day. Thank you to the Gold Star families who have sacrificed their loved ones who fought in order to ensure our freedom. Freedom is not free. It comes with a price. In all, 2,977 souls perished that tragic morning, and thousands have since died from 9-11-related illnesses. As I fled from my building, I silently promised God that going forward, I would do my best to stand as a witness for Him and give back. I was reminded that life is a fragile gift, and I needed to make it count. Eight years later, I chose to leave the financial industry and fulfill my earlier commitment to give back to my country by serving as a special agent in the FBI. I was part of the Bureau for over a dozen years. During the sacred commemoration, may we take a moment to reflect on the victims and heroes of 9-11 and those who gave everything in the aftermath. 
May we each consider what sacrifice we can make in order to give back and serve our great nation. I am blessed and proud to be an American. United we stand, in God we trust. We must never forget September 11th of 2001. This is Nicole Parker, and I'm a former special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it on demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa.